you ever feel the contrast between Sundays and other days? You know, on Sunday you can come to church and enjoy really great music, and, and it can be quite a stirring thing, and, and you know, you, you kind of have this, it's almost like a mountaintop, thing. that's a sort of Christian ease language, but a mountaintop experience where it's kind of special, uh, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday can be the exact opposite, you know, where, where it's involved on a Sunday, but like he takes the rest of the week off in our lives. That's how it feels sometimes, doesn't it? That, that God is, is kind of active and, you know, we worship and it's all special on a Sunday, but then Monday, Wednesday, whenever, when life hits, the challenging circumstances, the difficulties come, sometimes it feels like God is just kind of distant and the Sunday effect doesn't last long enough. I don't know if you saw Stephen Fry uh, having his little rant recently. Uh, in many ways, he's absolutely right. If you haven't seen it, it's worth looking up. Uh, he rants against God and just blames God for all evil in the world and blames God for being uninvolved. And the God he's talking about is exactly that. He's hideous, uninvolved, distant, but he's not talking about the God of the Bible. Right in the middle of his little uh, two-minute blast, he, he, he talks about a, f- a couple of other gods, some Greek gods. He says, I wish God was more like that, like more human, more involved. And I went, yes, he is. That's exactly what we have. We have a God who is involved and is more human than the standard kind of distant, angry, uh, evil-making God that people come up with. Is, that, is it true? Is it possible for the sake of an atheist and for the sake of us, that the God we talk about on Sunday can be involved Monday through Saturday as well. Well, that's the passage that we're going to look at this morning. It's going to point us to that reality, that God is both glorious and he's involved. And the passage is in Mark. It's in Mark chapter 9. And we are in a series called A Different Kind of King. We're working our way through Mark's gospel from uh, chapter 8 to the end. And uh, so last week we started and we were thinking about how When Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say that I am? They they answered, oh, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say this, some say that. But um, what about you, he said? Who do you say that I am? Uh, And Peter stepped out and in kind of a bold moment said, you are the Christ. And he was right. Finally, somebody had recognized it. Someone who was close to Jesus recognized this is the Christ. This is who he is. And, and immediately you'd expect the kind of the hype to build. But instead, Jesus calms them down and goes, don't tell anyone. Because he doesn't want a, a Christ, a kind of a, a king being elevated and celebrated who isn't the king that's going to the cross. That is, in the first eight chapters, we've had miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and the temptation will be to to make Jesus kind of a genie on steroids. You know, like he's the ultimate one who can fix our needs, and Jesus doesn't want that. He doesn't want to be the genie for the people of Israel any more than he wants to be the genie for us. And so he says, no, 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 let me tell you what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And it completely rocked their world. They couldn't fathom that. In fact, Peter rebuked Jesus. Jesus rebuked Peter. It was quite a heavy passage, actually, to start a series last week. And, and the point that Jesus wanted them to get was this. If you're going to be my followers, you've got to understand that, that that means suffering and then glory. 
You want a shortcut to glory. You want to go straight there. But, but boys, no, it's not going to be that way. If you're going to follow me, you're going to take up your cross and it's going to be tough. But it's okay because there's glory beyond it. And you kind of look at the little thing of your life, the little circumstances, and it seems so important. But actually, I've got the big picture. So trust me, follow me, get back behind me and let me lead the way. This is a, a different kind of king, a king who's ready to die. A king who's ready to say, I can see beyond your circumstances and take care of them. Just trust me and follow. And then we come to Mark chapter 9, and and it follows straight on from that. And it almost feels like it's sort of balancing what we saw last week. Where where last week felt really kind of hard and and challenging and, oh, take up a cross. I'm not a fan of that. Tough tough circumstances, I'd rather not. But then suddenly we come to chapter 9, and three of his disciples get this glorious glimpse of who Jesus is. In fact, we're going to look at two stories. There's the first story where they go up on a mountain, and they get this glimpse of Jesus' glory. And then right after that, we see them down in the valley in the nitty-gritty stuff of life. And it's these two together that are going to be so golden for us this morning. So let's look at it, Mark 9, starting at verse 1. Said to them, uh, page eight four four ish in the in the Bible there, eight four four eight four five something like that. Jesus said to them, "Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power." And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Let's just pause there. Can I get a drink of water? Thanks. Um, This is one of those kind of stories when you read it and you go, What? What was that? Peter, James, and John... We recognize those names. These are kind of the inner circle, the, the closest disciples to Jesus. And he, he, he makes this promise, this, this statement that, you know, we're, we're talk, talking about death. We're talking about uh, all this kind of stuff. But actually, uh, the coming, thank you, the coming of the kingdom, the glory is coming. And, and some of you are not going to taste death before you see it. And then three of them go up on a mountain and they get a glimpse. What is going on? As best we can, we need to try to imagine it. Jesus on the mountain, and, and, and suddenly, it's like the curtains are pulled back. Suddenly, they got to see something that was infinitely real. You see, when, when Jesus left heaven to come to earth, 
you could say that his glory was veiled. It was, it was kind of shrouded. It was covered by his, uh, his becoming fully human. But in this moment, it's like God pulled back the curtain and said, okay, boys, I'm going to give you a glimpse of what my son's really like. And suddenly, there was this radiant brightness, the same kind of word you'd use for the, the light coming from the sun. It was just intense and, and, and massively powerful. And right there with Jesus, you get Moses and Elijah. And somehow they recognized them. They knew who they were. And these two were talking with Jesus. You can understand why they were terrified, can't you? I would be freaked out by that. Now, Moses and Elijah are, are two significant figures. In the Old Testament, they're... Um, Elijah was the first of the prophets. He was the the one that came and spoke for God to the nation. Moses was the one that wrote the first five books of the Old Testament a few hundred years before Elijah. Actually, they were both prophets. And I think that's probably the focus here. They both went up on a mountain. They both encountered God in a cloud. They both spoke for God to the people. And here, suddenly, these two men are there with Jesus and they're interacting with Jesus. Elijah the prophet, and Moses, also a prophet. In fact, back in Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, God had said, one day, I'm going to send another prophet like Moses. He's going to be from among your own people. And when he comes, listen to him. And suddenly now, here are the three disciples, and there's Elijah and Moses. You could say the two great prophets of the Old Testament. And they're pointing to Jesus. They're interacting with Jesus. They're looking to Jesus because Jesus is more significant than they are. And just to make sure the disciples get it, this cloud envelops them and this voice comes out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. There's God quoting Deuteronomy. Here's the prophet, like Moses. Here's the one that's going to represent me, that's going to communicate the reality about who I am to this world. Peter, James, John, you better listen to him. I think they got a glimpse of Jesus that day, don't you? I would imagine that that they came away from that marked deeply. Actually, uh, at the time, Peter comes out with this kind of bizarre statement, like, this is really good, let's build tents. (laughs) I love Peter, he just says kind of what's on his mind. You know, let's build tents. Uh, and, And funnily enough, Jesus, Moses, Elijah tend to tune that out. You know, there's no great, well, that's a good idea. Let's build a tent. And so, so he kind of blurts this thing out. But later, years, years later, decades later, Peter wrote a letter. And in this letter, he talks about the fact that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Isn't that beautiful? He's talking about the prophets of the Old Testament and how they anticipated Jesus. And he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. I wonder what it would be like for us to to see the majesty of Christ. I wish, I'd love to be able to kind of click my fingers or or say a prayer or something and suddenly kind of the the skies sort of uh, get rolled back and we get a glimpse. I'd be fine with three seconds just to see Jesus on his throne. Wouldn't you love that? The king of the whole cosmos, the one who sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father, who who is able to speak to us of the Father and reveal the Father to us. He's on the throne. And right now, while we're sitting here, Jesus is there and he's surrounded 
Not with, you know, three blokes trying to build tents. He's surrounded with, with angels. And the Bible talks about cherubim and seraphim and gives them all these different titles and, and labels. And you, it's hard to imagine, but that's kind of the point. All these angels gathered around, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, and the music and the singing, and they're celebrating him. And they're saying, he's the one. He's the one. He's the prophet. He's the savior. He's the deliverer. He's the king. We worship him. He's worthy of all the glory and honor and praise. If we could get a glimpse of that for just a few seconds, I guarantee that decades from now, we'd still be writing about it. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter, James, and John had a privilege that day. They got to see the infinite glory of Jesus the Christ. They got to see his majesty. They got to to see just for a moment the reality of who he is. Fully God, fully man, fully one. But the fully man part wasn't clouding or getting in the way of the majesty was there. Wouldn't that have been amazing? It's definitely the uh, archetypal mountaintop experience, right? But then they come down. And as we read on, they're coming down the mountain, verse 9. In fact, before we do that, let me just underline something. God doesn't speak very often in the Bible. I just want to make sure we don't miss this, okay? In the Bible, the voice from heaven that is God the Father, we only get that a few times. We had it early on in Mark, kind of an introductory, this, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And he's talking about how much he delights in his son. Here we are at the start of the second half of Mark, and we get a voice again. This is my beloved son, listen to him. In John chapter 12, there's another incident where a voice comes from heaven. And guess what's the consistent theme of all of these? The father delights in and loves the son. We can just kind of read over that and just go, yeah, yeah, whatever, and keep moving. That is massive, isn't it? At the core of everything is not a God who's sitting on a distant throne somewhere trying to come up with ways to make people suffer. That's Stephen Fry's God. At the core of everything, there's a God who is infinitely satisfied and delighted by his son. So that for all eternity, Father and Son have been delighting in each other, loving each other, responding to each other, honoring each other, glorifying each other. And the Spirit has been uh, at the core of all of that dynamic communication. And guess what? Christianity spills out from that. And so here we are, thousands of years, 2,000 years later, reading a book about a moment when the Father said, I'm delighted by this Son. You've got to listen to Him. And if the Father says that, surely we need to take that on board. If we say, well, I don't find Jesus that thrilling, it's because we haven't seen him right. The Father knows the Son perfectly, and he's been perfectly satisfied for all eternity. If, if I find other things more attractive than Jesus, it's not that Jesus isn't attractive, it's that I haven't seen him fully. And maybe that's the prayer that we need to have more as a church. Lord, we want to see you more clearly. We, we want to get a glimpse, whether it's the majestic glimpse or whether it's the more mundane glimpse. We want to see you because that's what's going to change us. And so they're coming down from the mountain, verse 9, and, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. They're probably getting used to that by now. All right, yeah, we'll keep it secret. But he says until. There's a time frame now. He says until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Oh, good. 
So they kept the matter to themselves, kind of confused. What does it mean from the dead? What is this rising from the dead about? Now, I don't think they were completely dense, okay? I don't think that they had no idea what rising from the dead was. I think they didn't grasp how the Son of Man was going to rise from the dead. Well, the Son of Man, that's, that's the, the ruler, the one that comes and represents God. And, 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 and how, how is he going to die? So how is he going to rise from the dead? So they're all confused by that. And they asked him, why do the scribes say in, back in the Old Testament that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So they're having this whole conversation as they're coming down. We don't want to get too caught up in the detail of it, but, but basically they're saying, Hey, Jesus, in the Old Testament, it says right at the end of what we would call the Old Testament, at the end of the prophets, Malachi, that Elijah must come first. What's the deal with that? And Jesus goes, yep, he will, and he has. And they did to him what they said. It's a bit confusing, isn't it? I think what Jesus is referring to here is John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. He kind of carried the Elijah mantle and he did the Elijah thing and he prepared the way for me. Uh, and actually, Elijah's going to come again in the future before I come. But it's all a bit complex for them and we don't need to get caught up in it. But, but here's what I want us to feel. Imagine that you were there on the mountain and you're seeing Jesus, you know, Elijah and Moses and suddenly it's just Jesus. And as you're walking down, what's your conversation going to be about? About what you've just seen, right? About the majesty and sorry about the tense thing, Jesus. That was, I just didn't know what I was saying. But hey, Elijah, let's talk about Elijah. And, you know, they're having this whole conversation, living in the moment. And then they get down and they come back to life as it normally is with a bit of a bump. Look at it. Verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. <laughs> Typical. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. That's kind of hitting 
normal life with a bit of a bump, isn't it? That's like the rubber meets the road. You've just been on the mountain. You've just seen the glory of Christ manifested in a unique way. You've just heard the voice of God the Father, and and you get down into the valley, and there's a crowd, and they're arguing, and there's a demon-possessed boy, and there's a dad who's desperate. It's just kind of normal life in Jesus' world. And what, what happens? Well, Jesus finds out what's going on, the father explains the situation, and Jesus heals the boy and then has a chat with the disciples. Fairly straightforward, right? But I want us to look at this from three perspectives. Three perspectives that I think drive home the truth of this passage for us. We have had, in the first few verses, the infinite glory of Christ. Now we see Christ involved in the grittiness of life. And we've got to keep those two together. First of all, look at it purely in terms of Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Think about Jesus. And and if this is the one that the Father says, listen to him, he's the prophet. He's the one that's going to represent me. He's the one that's going to communicate what I'm like. What do we learn about God by watching Jesus and listening to him? We see Jesus on the mountain, glory revealed, coming down from the mountain, getting stuck in to the messiness of a situation. I mean, surely, he, surely he could have stood back and said, hold on, hold on, hold on. I've just been on the mountain, and these three over here have just seen what I'm like. Let's just have a press conference. Peter, James, John, you line up. I won't be in it because that would be a little bit arrogant, but you guys talk about me. Go on, go ahead. Fill the crowds in. What did you see? Who was there? What did they say? Peter, what did you say? Okay, everyone got it right now. What's the problem? But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus isn't kind of caught up with himself and his own importance. He's concerned about the people that are there. He comes down, he meets somebody who's desperate, and he deals with the situation. And that is a beautiful picture of the God of the Bible, a God who is infinitely glorious and yet involved in the grittiness of life. He's infinitely glorious, and we can sing about him on Sundays, but he's involved in the grittiness of Monday mornings and Tuesday afternoons and Thursday nights and Friday nights and all the stuff that goes on. He is involved. He's not distant and cold. He comes in and he cares. We could go through the Bible and we could see example after example where God is presented in all of his glory and his majesty, and yet we see within the passages how God stoops down and humbles himself. What kind of a king would do that? If you were the king who was the highest, most elevated, most glorious, the one who was worthy of most praise, would you get down to this level? A kid rolling around with foam coming out of his mouth? Surely that's for the servants, right? But not for God. Not for Jesus, because that's the kind of God that we have. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. It's a different kind of king than anything we've ever seen before. The kind of king that gets involved in the nitty-gritty messiness of normal life. And he cares, and he loves, and he takes care of the situation. We could pause right there. We could just ponder that. The picture of a God so high, stooping so low. It would do us good to do that. To think about the the throne and think about the cross. Think about how God's glory is revealed, not just on this throne, but elevated on a cross to die because that's the kind of king that he is, the kind of God that we have. But then look at it from the perspective of of the father. 
If, if you're a dad, you probably can relate to it or, or a mum, but, but I'm sure we can all kind of put ourselves into his sandals. You, you have this child, your pride and joy. You know, he looks like me, he's got my nose. And, you know, you have all those kind of early life celebrations. And, you know, when he cries, it's different. And when, you know, when his nappy needs changing, it's okay because he's mine. And there's all that delight of a, of a new father. And then something's not right. And there's that sinking feeling of something's not right because he does weird things. He manifests in strange ways. And from childhood, from very young, it becomes clear that this child is, is gripped and controlled by a demon. That's got to be the most frightening thing, hasn't it? The, the person that you love and, and that you would be willing to lay down your life for as a parent is completely controlled by a demon. A demon that hates the child, that, that throws the child into water or into fire. I mean, children are hard enough to keep control of normally. Imagine a child with a demon out to destroy it. How many nights had that dad slept? How many nights had he laid awake with his wife or maybe taking turns watching the child to make sure he was safe? And this had been going on for years. And finally, they hear about Jesus and he brings him to Jesus and, and the disciples say, okay, we can do this. And they do their thing and it doesn't work. And the scribes are there arguing and the disciples are defending and, and it's all kind of awkward and Jesus isn't there. And if, if you were that man, wouldn't you feel a bit desperate? Like this is my last hope, my last resort, and it's not working. And so when Jesus comes and, and asks for what's going on, the man explains it to him. And then Jesus says, what, why, why are you saying if? Where's the if? Just, just believe. And I love the man's response. The man's response is so human. He says, I do believe, except I don't help my unbelief. It's like I've, got, I've only got this much left. My tanks are empty. I haven't had a full night's sleep in seven years. My, I love this kid, and, and I am, it's tearing me apart. My wife's having a breakdown. You've got no idea what I'm going through. I've got nothing left. And Jesus doesn't rebuke that. Jesus comes to that, and he says, okay, and he deals with it. He doesn't say, okay, come on, let's do an exercise in building up your faith now, young man. You're obviously lacking faith. Let's do a faith push-up. You ready? Oh, good job. Let's try another one. Jesus doesn't work with him to develop his faith. He deals with the problem. And I love the fact that as we look at the story from the man's perspective, we see hope for us Monday through Saturday when our faith is weak. During the week, when our faith is weak, when, when we feel ground down and we feel like, I want to believe, I want to trust you, Lord, but I'm struggling. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't rebuke that. He gets it. Because he is not just infinitely glorious, he's involved in the grittiness and he gets that. He knows the pain, the, the struggle, the difficulty. He knows what we go through. And still, he invites us to trust him. And if all we've got is just one little gram of faith, and there's nothing else left, and all we can do is say, okay, I'm going to put this much trust in you, Jesus, because that's all I've got. He'll take that, because it's not about our faith. That's a lie from the enemy that we've got to work up faith within us and be kind of strong faith types. The reality is, who do we have our faith in? And if we have our faith in the one who is able to care and take care of, 
then he just invites us to, to throw our little faith, no matter how weak, onto him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever day of the week, and say, oh, Jesus, I'm desperate here. I am desperate. This circumstance, this challenge, this difficulty, this, this thing that's just overwhelmingly Jesus, I haven't got much faith. Help my unbelief. Here it is. I'm trusting you. What kind of a king would I accept that? It's a different kind of king. The kind of king that that knows what it's like to be weak like us, who knows what it's like to have empty tanks and have nothing left. And all we can do is just collapse onto him. And he takes that because he cares. Infinitely glorious, involved in the grittiness of life. And that man, whatever his name was, is an example to us, a reminder for us that this truth about God is truth for this whole week, not just for today. When we're struggling, when we're doubting, when we're fearing, when we're feeling like, I just don't have what it takes. The truth is you don't, but he does. And when all you've got left is just the fumes in your gas tank, because, you know, like the the petrol's just all gone and there's just fumes and you feel like I'm barely going to make it another step, just lean on to him, lean into him, give him that bit of faith and say, Jesus, I'm trusting you. Infinitely glorious involved. Okay, here I am. Just going to trust you. And then there's a third perspective as well, as well as looking at it in terms of Jesus and seeing that, that, that contrast and yet the beautiful connection between the glory and the, the grittiness. There's also the, the man, the, the, the weak faith individual, and we can relate to that. There's also the disciples. And I feel for the disciples because they've been trying really hard doing their thing, you know, they're doing ministry and they're busy and, and they've been told you have authority to cast out demons and they've been casting out demons and suddenly this demon comes along and they can't cast it out. What's going on there? In Mark 3.15, they were given authority to cast out demons. In Mark 6 verse 7, they were given authority to cast out demons and now in Mark 9, they can't do it. And so after all of the, the day is over, all the ministry is done, they, they retire privately with Jesus. They say, <clears throat> Jesus, uh, why couldn't we do that? It, it kind of put us in an awkward spot there because we, we kind of felt inadequate, you know. We, we, we weren't, you weren't here. We couldn't deal with it. That was really embarrassing. What, what's, what's the problem? And Jesus says, this kind can only come out through prayer. Now, I'm scratching my head at this, all right? I don't quite get what Jesus is saying. Is he saying there's Lots of demons you can deal with, no problem, but there's a few, like a tricky few, you know, that need a certain kind of prayer or something. I don't think so. And I'm not going to be kind of dogmatic about this, but my sense as I'm reading through Mark is I wonder if having been given the authority in chapter 3 and given the authority in chapter 6, I wonder if they're growing complacent by chapter 9. In light of them, uh, three of them going up on the mountain and seeing this glimpse of Jesus, in light of them seeing Jesus able to take care of it, maybe he wants them to remember, actually, this is my ministry. It's not really yours. And I'm the one that does the miracles. I'm the one that changes lives. So I let you participate, but don't think you can do that apart from me. You need to be praying. And if that's what's going on here, it's a very gracious reminder to them that, you know what, this is not about the work, this is about the Messiah. And I look at that and I think, well, I don't know if that's exactly what's going on, but it feels like it could be a really helpful thing for us to keep in mind. 
here we are, a new church. We've been going for just over a year, and we're kind of getting into a rhythm of doing certain things, you know, and, uh, and we know how to do this, and we sometimes know how to do that, and there's backups for this and this, and, you know, so we're kind of getting things worked out, and the danger becomes that we become complacent. It's okay, Jesus, we'll handle church this week. It's okay, God, we can do life group. It's okay, we know how to care for somebody. And maybe that's what was happening with the disciples, and maybe that could happen with us. And maybe we need to let this passage kind of startle us. Go actually one step beyond what he's doing, and it will fall flat. If we try to do one thing in our own strength, not relying on him, not praying, then it will fall flat and this will collapse. And and maybe this is just a very gentle reminder for us as a church. We need to be prayers, prayers. We need to be people who demonstrate our dependence on Christ, even as we serve him. We were talking about this as a startup team a little bit the other day and and saying, you know, we, we really do want to be a praying church. And so uh, wouldn't it be a cool thing after a service like this, when the service comes to an end, for, for, for one or two or six or seven, whoever, just to, to turn to someone and pray, just, just to kind of follow up a, a message and the singing and say, you know what, I'm kind of nervous about Wednesday because Wednesday, you know, X is happening and I, you know, I'm not sure how it's going to go down or I need to talk to so-and-so or there's this thing and I can't tell you, but I'm, I'm kind of struggling. Can we pray? And we just think it would be a cool thing as a church for that to be sort of normal for us. And so let me encourage you as we bring the message to an end this morning, be thinking about, okay, the contrast between Sunday and the weekdays. Where do you anticipate that you could feel weak this week? Where do you anticipate that sense of, oh, I really need Jesus to come through in that? And then after the service is finished, we're going to be kind of organizing tables and preparing for lunch. But that doesn't mean that you can't pray with someone. Just grab someone who's been up front, someone you know, a life group leader, just whoever, uh, and just say, hey, preacher said we can pray. Can we pray? Use me as the excuse. And just, just you know, give whatever information you want to give. I can promise you the person's not going to, you know, be embarrassed. They're just going, okay, yeah, let's pray. And you pray, and, and it kind of says, Jesus, we're trusting you. Jesus, you're the thing. You're the center. You're the one. It's your ministry. This is your church. We're your people, and we're going to trust you. And if we keep trusting him, if we keep our gaze on him, then we can move forward. Big faith, little faith. We can move forward confident because God's at work. And the kind of God that we have is the kind of God who's infinitely glorious and yet is very ready to step into the uh, nitty-gritty of normal life and be involved there to change lives, to transform situations and circumstances, and to draw hearts to him.